Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Rector's Bible Study. I'm really looking forward to this chapter today with all of you. We are in chapter 19 of Revelation, and we only have three more weeks after this week before Revelation is finished. Um, This has been such a great gift to me, and I appreciate whenever I hear from those of you who are out there studying with us about how this has impacted you and the ways in which you approach your faith, Um, the challenges it has made, especially when it actually impacts the way we practice our discipleship. This has been a gift to me all year. Um, I think that I can't really think of another book that would have been quite as good to study during our pandemic year than Revelation. So I hope you've enjoyed it too. Um, As a reminder, we are receiving suggestions about books that we can study next school year. And so thank you to those of you who have already made your recommendations for what we can study next. If you've not made a recommendation and wish to, I hope you will either make a comment in the thread here on this video or send an email to meredithrose at mrose at stmichael.org so that we can collect some recommendations about what we might study. Probably next week or maybe two weeks, I'll bring maybe the one or two most requested books to study next and just kind of take a straw poll of sorts and see what you all would like to do. I'm up for really anything. Um, I just want it to be as impactful as possible for all of us together. So do make those recommendations. And as always, if you've got questions or comments either from weeks past or from today as we go through chapter 19, I hope you will make those in the comments fields and just say hi to one another because although we are definitely moving toward the next phase of reopening, I am seeing more people out and about feeling a bit more confident, um, which is a good thing. We are still not meeting in this group in person. I am super hopeful that come next fall, we'll be able to do some version of an in-person class, but Never fear, we will keep this live online offering regardless of whether or not we've got people in person in the chapel or some other space here. We're going to keep this going because we've created a great community here online of people who probably can't get to St. Michael in the middle of a Wednesday morning. And so we will definitely have at least both next year in some form, and I'm excited about that. So as we get going, we're going to open with a prayer So let's kind of calm our hearts and minds, shake out any anxiety or worry we have, and say our prayers together. Ready? Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for bringing us together as one people to help study your word. May our time together be a gift to us. May you fill our hearts and minds with your spirit to continue to inspire the work that we do in our own discipleship journey. As we grow closer and closer to you, may we extend your arms of love in the world to everyone we meet. God, we ask your blessing upon all those in our community who are sick, those who need your healing touch most. May they be surrounded by people who care, people who can offer them hope and healing, and may they never lose connection to the promise you make of eternal life with you. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's jump on in. We are in chapter 19, and chapter 19 is 
perhaps you might consider it kind of the final battle. Working up to chapter 19, we have seen Babylon rise and Babylon fall. Chapter 18 brought us the final fall of Babylon. Babylon the Great has been destroyed. Now as we move into chapter 19, even though Babylon the Great City has fallen, the evil ones in the world are still there. So the beast, the antichrist, whomever, has kind of gathered up the kings of the earth, which is effectively all of the forces of evil that have followed the beast are now gathered to wage one final battle against the good. And we're going to see that happen here in chapter 19. And so we've moved from the city, which has fallen, to outside the city where the final battle is really going to take place. Remember reading a couple chapters ago about gathering the forces at Megiddo, right? That Armageddon. We are effectively at that point where the final battle will take place and the beast will finally be cast away. As we get into chapter 19, we have basically three sections. Um, We've got section one, rejoicing in heaven. We're going to see the big rejoicing at the fall of Babylon. Then we've got the rider on the white horse. And finally, in the third section, the beast is defeated. And so as I noted at the beginning, I would love your questions and comments. Make them in the fields around this video if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube or send an email while we are in class to Meredith and she'll make sure to ping me with those questions or comments as we go and that makes our experience all the more richer. Let's jump right in to chapter 19, verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through verse 8 so that we get a picture of this rejoicing in heaven and then we'll parse it out. Here we go, chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I, John, heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they said, Hallelujah, the smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and all who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder peals, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, pure and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We'll pause there. We have reached this climactic moment in the story. Babylon has fallen. And we're back in the throne room, back around the throne of God. And the multitude is praising God, saying, Hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns. We know these words. These are words that have influenced the way that we sing and pray and praise in our own worship services. This is that moment when God has done the thing God promised to do. 
throughout all of time, God has made this great promise to create wholeness out of what is broken, to heal the brokenness of the world and of humanity. And right now at this point in John's vision, we are seeing the fulfillment of that promise finally. And you've got this heavenly throne room full of all kinds of beings praising God, falling down and worshiping God on his throne. And it's a powerful scene and a powerful moment. This is rejoicing at the end. Now, there is an image used here that I think is worthy for us to unpack for a few minutes. If you noticed in verse seven and eight, We have reference to the marriage, the marriage that has finally come between the lamb and the bride. So let's take a few minutes to talk about this marriage imagery within scripture. Now, I think we're all likely familiar with the idea that marriage is a representation, a beautiful representation of God's love for humanity and for Christ, of Christ's love for the church. Now, this imagery imagery is used throughout the entire Bible. From the very beginning with creation, we see that marriage is this perfect union, right? We find this in the story of Adam and Eve, where Adam is referred to as Eve's husband, Eve referred to as Adam's wife. Even though we don't get what we might consider a wedding, there is this marriage relationship, this mutuality between these two people these two beings, these two entities that represent the ultimate good, the ultimate hope and promise that God makes, that at some point we will be unified like a marriage is unified. We see this idea repeated again when Moses takes the Israelites out of Egypt and at Mount Sinai, they enter enter into this mutual covenant of love God and the people, and the people become, well, eh, become. The people start on a journey that will help them become the Jewish people that we know in Scripture, the Jewish people um, in which Jesus lived, and obviously that goes through to today. That really begins with this mutual covenantal relationship like marriage at Mount Sinai after they leave Egypt. We see this again. In the teachings of Jesus, Jesus regularly uses the idea of a bride and bridegroom, the idea of preparing for the marriage feast, of attending the marriage feast and what that means in our own discipleship. We have taken this idea of marriage and we have really made it central to how we understand marriage sacramentally. So as Christian people, Marriage is obviously a critically important institution in which we enter. I would argue that marriage is second only to our discipleship of Christ, that when we define the priority of roles in our own lives, we begin as disciples, as followers of God, and number two, kind of the ultimate good is an expression of our own relationship to God through an earthly marriage. And I say all of that not to say that if you're not married, you're somehow imperfect. That's not true at all. But 
marriage has traditionally and is still lifted up as about the closest we can get on earth to the kind of relationship God hopes to have with us and with the church. We see this reflected in our own prayer book. At the very beginning of the marriage ceremony, we, or we as priests, recall a phrase that opens up the entire ceremony. This is what we say in our prayer book. The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation, and our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It signifies to us the mystery of the union between Christ and his church, and Holy Scripture commends it to be honored among all people. I can almost say that by memory. This idea that marriage represents the very best of our human condition, of our humanity, is something that has continued through the centuries to today. Marriage is critical as an idea of representing the kind of mutuality that God has with us. And that mutuality is really an important concept. Obviously, throughout history, different cultures in different places at different times have not, shall we say, emphasized the mutuality of marriage. But instead, marriage has turned ugly and become abusive and about power and control. That's not what marriage has been meant to be. Marriage at its best is mutual joy, mutual affection, mutual love, mutual support. It is mutuality. We're going to see why that is important. Let's look once again at verses 7 and 8. All right, I'm going to read 7 and 8 one more time. Let us rejoice and exult and give him, God, the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So if marriage is this ultimate covenant, ultimate mutuality, we see some fundamental ideas represented here that have been consistent throughout most of Scripture. There's one idea that undergirds everything about John's vision here in Revelation, and that is the idea of free choice. Okay, this is a big deal. So I want to just take a minute, kind of absorb this. It might seem very basic, but for me, everything about my understanding of God, about who I am, how I relate to God, how I relate to one another, what it is that I am meant to do in the world as a disciple of Christ. Everything about theology in general, for me, is predicated and founded upon this idea of free choice. And by free choice, what I mean is that we get to choose whether we reciprocate God's love or not. Now, when I was younger, the idea of free choice was almost less important. I, was, I love the idea of grace, right? We talk about amazing grace and God's grace that pours over us. We do not deserve grace. We cannot earn grace. And yet God's grace is true. And if grace is true, I, in the past, played with this idea that if grace is true, then everybody gets saved because we don't get saved of our own volition. Salvation is a gift 
from God given freely through grace, not earned, not deserved. And if God's love is true, if God's grace is true, then everybody gets to be with God. Everybody gets to be one in wholeness with God at some point. That sounded great to me. Then I realized as I studied more, free choice is actually more important. It almost trumps in a sense this idea that God's grace overwhelms everything. Because at the core of the gospel is the idea of love. Love is given by God to us completely and freely, totally, without being earned, without being deserved. God loves us. God loves each one of you completely. And we are invited, even perhaps compelled, to return God's love as completely as God loves us. The imperfection is found in our inability to ever love God perfectly. That's where grace comes in. Grace comes in because if we choose to love God, to reciprocate God's love for us, we will never do so perfectly and grace then covers the gap. But whether we love God back or not must remain our choice. If God forces us to love him back, then love is actually not the pure idea that we see in Christ. When Jesus gives himself over to be executed, I think we know in our bones, Jesus didn't have to, right? Jesus did all these amazing things. Jesus could have easily brought himself down off the cross. Jesus could have resisted all of this. Jesus could have done whatever. And yet Jesus doesn't. Jesus allows himself to be executed, to die horribly. Why? Because even then, God does not force us to love in return. Love remains forever our choice. And so free choice becomes the foundation upon which everything else is built for me. Now, there are plenty of much smarter people than me who flip that a little bit and create theologies that are slightly different than what I just described. They are well-intended good people, but I'm the one who has the camera and the microphone right now, and so I'm telling you what I think. <laughs> I would love to know what you think about this idea of free choice, if that makes sense to you, because how I will describe the rest of chapter 19 is based on this very simple but important idea. And so I want to make sure you understand how I am approaching this because as you try to be engaged with this in your own discipleship, it's important that you understand how I see it how I see theology developing here in God's promises, because you might like that and you may not like that. And I want you to really own the way that you approach this. Because as I will note at the end of today's study, oh, you know what? That wasn't true. <laughs> I'm sorry. As I will preach about this Sunday, so I was 
looking over sermon notes this morning. Um, what I will address this Sunday as we talk about rediscovering one another in community is this idea that we are better when we yoke ourselves together. Even if we disagree or see, see things differently or make choices that are slightly different, if we hang together as best we can, as faithfully and as loving as we can, we will end up being better together than we would be separated. Community matters. We need the community around us in order for us to walk the way of Christ, to develop our own discipleship, and to really come to a point at which we love as close to how God loves as possible. Okay. Let me see. How do we proceed? Yeah. So now if we're talking about love, and we're talking about our free choice in love, we get to this idea of mutuality in marriage. Okay, so now we've got love, fundamental, our free choice to reciprocate God's love for us first. God loves us first, we get to reciprocate. Now we get to this idea of marriage as representative of the best of our human relationships vis-a-vis Christ and his church, or God and the world. Marriage is meant to be mutual. Love in a marriage is not true love. If it is coerced or abusive, love in a marriage is only true when each party gives freely. Unfortunately, we don't have as many examples of this kind of mutual love in marriages as I wish we did. Too many marriages are formed and rooted in what I might say is significant imperfection, right? We are all imperfect, but imperfection which is effectively kind of distance away from God's hope for us, is a sliding scale. And unfortunately, I think many people find themselves in marriages where one or both members of the marriage just aren't quite as far down the path of mutual love as the other party wishes they were. And then that covenantal relationship of marriage breaks down. And it's a sadness. It's a loss. Um, I remember working with a rector when I was a seminarian who herself had been, was married for the third time, which I thought was kind of, I mean, three times, that's quite a few. And she describes, she described her marriages. The first was abusive which is unfortunate and sad. The second was just problematic. There were many secrets that she did not know and ended up being a bad situation for different reasons. And then she found herself in her third marriage and it was the kind of mutual love and affection that one hopes everyone could experience. I will not forget one day when I was there in the office and someone came in and they were very upset because they were going through a divorce. This was a member of the church. And they had gone to the prayer book to look for a service that ultimately kind of 
blesses the divorce. And I thought that was a little strange. My rector at the time looked at this parishioner and very lovingly said, divorce is not a moment where we celebrate. It's a moment where we acknowledge what breaks and we look to heal what is broken. And she said, we call that reconciliation because actually when a marriage dissolves, a covenant is broken and that covenant that breaks needs to be reconciled, needs to be repaired and healed. Theologically speaking, marriage is that mutual covenant that if broken can be healed, but it's only healed if there's the acknowledgement of the brokenness. And I don't know about you, but many times when I've spoken with people about their own divorces, it is really hard for people who have gone through a divorce to be vulnerable and courageous enough to admit their part, even if it's the minority share, their part in a covenant broken because it, it feels judgy and it feels like we need to defend ourselves from that kind of judgment when honestly the best is to heal, not to defend. And part of what we see here represented in this idea of the marriage feast between the lamb and the bride is a living into that sense of marriage as covenant. Okay, I have said too much about this, and so I realize I could just kind of meander for too long, and I do want to get to kind of where John John's vision gets to the marriage ceremony. And so I, I've seen a couple texts comes through, come through, so give me one second. Um, Steve says, it seems that grace comes before faith, but that it makes faith possible with our voluntary choice to believe. Oh, Steve, what a good evangelical. Um, so, <laughs> Christianity has multiple branches, as we know, and different branches of Christianity take on different theological ideas. There's probably nothing more fundamental to differentiate between different branches of Christianity than this idea of grace, faith, salvation, works, and some combination of all those things, right? If we look at the older traditions, either Roman Catholic or Orthodox, we see that there is this intended or unintended, I won't get into that, idea that develops over the first millennia that doing good earns salvation. Now, even if theologically that never was quite clear, in practice, that's really what became a part of especially the Roman Catholic Church, which was this sense of you got to do good in order to be saved. Well, the reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin, they attempted to turn that upside down. They had a doctrine of salvation by faith alone. And what that means is it is our faith that saves us, not anything that we do. Now, they unpack that further to say right faith equals right action. In other words, 
if one's faith is true, then one's actions will be good. You can't act badly and your faith also be true. That's kind of complicated. Um, Anglican theology, per the usual, kind of lands somewhere in between. We have a fundamental idea within the Episcopal Church or Anglican theology that praying shapes believing, actions shape faith or belief. That does not mean actions or works actually earn you salvation. However, it does acknowledge that our human condition is such that what we do, the habits we create, the actions that we take, absolutely influence what we think and what we believe, who we are, who we become. That idea is really at play here for me in the sense that, yes, faith matters, but saying faith first is one step farther than I wish to go because our choice, when we choose God, it's a choice that becomes a habit of choice that happens every day, all day. That's one of the reasons why I'm so convicted that church matters, right? Many of you have probably heard me say, can you be Christian on your own? The response is maybe, but it's not a good idea. By that I mean, eh, you know, I guess I can't say that you can't follow Jesus on your own separate from other people. I mean, I don't know. But I certainly know that our human condition is such that most, if not every one of us, won't do it as well, won't follow Jesus as well if we don't do so in community. That's what makes church so critically important. It's the community that helps shape us, helps us become the disciple that God hopes we will become. And so nah, I'm going to stop there because I'll become a heretic if I say too much more. So Howard says, um, regarding free choice, it reminds me of something else I've been taught, that God's hand is always reaching out to us, but we have to reach out to him and accept it. Yes, Howard, that's a good idea. There is this sense... Not the sense. I think scripture teaches us what is most true is that God comes to us first. And it's our response to God that puts us on the right path of discipleship. I like to say about baptism that baptism is not a get out of hell free card. It's a moment when we actually make a turn. We make a pivot. And in that pivot we begin to grow closer and closer to God. Baptism is a starting point. It is a term. Baptism is not the once and done that I think bad theology comes out of, right? Uh, I'm going to stop there because we're going to run out of time if I keep jabbering on. Um, and then Steve's response to what I said is, what about the desert saints? I said what I said, Steve. And they might be very nice people, but they just can't do it as well on their own as they can do in community. And I'm sticking to it. Thank you very much. Okay, let's keep on with this first section. The first section is going to take much more time than sections two and three. So just hang on. Let's finish 
this first section with verses 9 and 10. Okay, so jump back into Scripture. So John gets a little caught up in everything that he is seeing in this throne room. Verse 9 says, The angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I, John, fell down at the angel's feet to worship him. And he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Interesting, isn't it? John is so overwhelmed by this moment, this incredible moment where all of the multitude is shouting out hallelujah and praising God in this amazing way. John is just overcome with excitement and emotion and he falls down at the feet of the angel and begins worshiping him. Now this angel quickly corrects John. He says, get up, get up. You don't worship me, worship God. Worship God in Christ, because it is Jesus who represents all of the goodness of God, the promise, the prophecy, the spirit, everything. But John is just human, like we are. John makes an innocent mistake. John worships the messenger instead of worshiping the message. That's something that I think we all understand. I mean, we see this happen in small ways all the time, right? People get confused about those who show them extra care or love or attention when they are in desperate need of it, right? I mean, we how many stories have been told or exposés been written about people who end up misunderstanding or falling in love with their teachers or their doctors or their counselors or whomever because they are vulnerable and these people who are responsible for positively influencing their lives, show them the kind of care and love that they are so desperately missing in their own lives, and then they misunderstand and misinterpret that care and love as something that it is not meant to be. Now, obviously, there's the caveat that there are people who have influence and they abuse that influence, but most do not, the vast majority do not, but there can still be this confusion when we are desperate for love. We also see this kind of mistake happen in big ways. It is very common that Christians, that disciples, tend to love what Jesus teaches rather than loving what Jesus represents. I'm gonna say that differently. It is very common that good Christians make decisions, take actions, create habits based on what Jesus taught only, rather than rooting and anchoring their identities in Christ and what Jesus represents, which is that wholeness of God. It's difficult for us, it it is never meant to be super clear, that Jesus is both human and divine, right? So as a human teacher, Jesus teaches wonderful things. And learning along with Jesus, learning from Jesus' teachings is totally good. That is not a problem. However, if our starting place isn't our human condition in need 
of salvation, in need of God at the very root and core of who we are, then all of Jesus' teachings just become nice ideas. Rather than being intellectual students of Jesus, or at its best, perhaps being intellectual students of Jesus that then put some of his teachings into practice, we actually need to start from a place of need, a place of need for God in a profound, whole, incredibly... We need to start with our own brokenness and need. When we begin there, when we know that we are imperfect, that we are sinful, that we left to our own devices will fall, then we understand the promise that God makes through Christ as saving us from the brokenness of our own humanity. And then we can learn from what Jesus taught. That's when we build on that good foundation and we learn what Jesus taught. It's far too often that people just stay up top and like Jesus' teachings. But it's kind of like the house that was built on sand. If you don't create a sure foundation that is really anchored in and defined by our own imperfection, then all of the stuff that Jesus teaches just becomes nice. And Jesus is so much more than that, so much more than nice, so much more than just good sayings. Jesus is a lot better. And we need to be in touch with that kind of saving experience of Christ in order for the teachings to actually influence us the way that I think Christ hopes that they will, that God in the triune Father, Son, Holy Spirit really hopes that those teachings will influence us. All right, that is really the end of the first section. As I noted, it was going to be heavy. I appreciate the feedback and the questions in the comments. I would love some more. I want you to know if you are unclear about any of these points, know that you're not alone. And if you would prefer almost an anonymous question or comment, I know sometimes I reference who says what. If someone makes a question or comment publicly, like in the comment thread, then I assume they don't mind being public. If you really do want a private anonymous question asked or comment made, always feel comfortable sending it to Meredith and just make a note, you know, just please don't use my name. Because if you've got a question, I think other people have the same question. And be confident and courageous and make the ask because it will help others who gather with us in this study. All right, that being said, I'm gonna have some coffee. And then we'll go on with section two. Mm, coffee, coffee, coffee. Okay, let's look at section two. This is kind of a fun one. The rider on the white horse. Turn to verse 11. We're going to read a few together. Chapter 19, verse 11. Here we go. Then I, John, saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider 
is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name inscribed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, this passage represents a rider on the white horse, right? The Savior entering on a white horse. Where do you think we get this image? Right here in chapter 19. Jesus comes riding in. The Word of God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, comes riding in on a white horse, followed by others on white horses to save the day, to literally save the world. Jesus is described in this passage a little surprisingly, perhaps. Now, we know the history of messianic prophecies, right? Let's do a little quick reminder that the Messiah had been promised for centuries, right? Going back before the exile, during and after the exile, and then the gospel writers, especially Matthew, used those prophecies to define Jesus in a very particular way. The reason that the gospel writers had to work to define Jesus is because Jesus won like the Messiah who people were expecting. People were expecting that the Messiah would be in the form of like King David and that the Messiah would, in a sense, ride in on a white horse and take control of Israel, make them strong again, that they would resist their enemies, both foreign and domestic, and would raise Israel up as a great kingdom once again. Jesus came in, not on a white horse, but on what? On a donkey, on the colt. We have Jesus in Palm Sunday, riding into Jerusalem, mocking the great triumphal entries of conquering kings and emperors in a very explicit way. Jesus takes this idea of Messiah and turns it straight on its head and instead rides in on a donkey with poor, dirty people waving palm branches and then within days is arrested, flogged, executed, and buried. What kind of Messiah is that? We know, of course, that Jesus' resurrection changed everything and that Jesus gives the Spirit and opens up the minds and the hearts of the disciples to understand that the Messiah, as foretold in the prophets, was ultimately misunderstood because humans, us, began to understand the Messiah in worldly terms not in heavenly terms. Jesus comes in, in this moment, and represents this kind of final 
powerful, heavenly uh, defeat of the beast that will happen in just a few verses. Jesus rides in on this white horse, kind of doing all the stuff people had hoped the Messiah would do in the first place, in order to ultimately defeat the evil. Now, remember, Revelation is symbolic. It is not predictive. And so, John's vision here gives voice to an idea that the Jewish people had always hoped would be realized through the Messiah. At the same time John is really writing this letter, the Gospels are being circulated around that redefine Messiah as saving us from the evils of the world in order that we might be one with God in God's heavenly kingdom. That's a shift that takes a while to make clearly. And then it gets all screwed up again because then Christianity becomes intertwined with the Roman Empire and that's a different conversation. Here we see Christ as this white horse riding powerhouse who will crush the beast and the armies of the world once and for all. It just, it is what it is. But here in John's vision, we see the hint that the power that Christ represents is the power of justice and righteousness, of purity and complete love of God that will ultimately overcome whatever power in the world. What we see here is that real final revelation message that no matter what happens on this earth, God wins. No matter what we think may be triumphing here on the earth, God wins. And God does not win by matching earthly power with earthly power. God wins by overcoming the earthly brokenness of power with righteousness and justice and love. That's what is represented here, riding in on the white horse, that word of God, that word of love that will ultimately triumph over hatred and oppression and abuse and power in the world. Okay, so that's section two. Now we get to section three, which is the beast defeated. Okay, ready? Last little bit of today's study. Let's look at verse 17, and we'll just basically read to the end. This is gross. Ready? Verse 17, here we go. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and their riders, flesh of all, both free and slave, both small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest 
were killed by the sword of the rider on the horse, the sword that came from his mouth, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Ooh. So, yes, this is a graphic passage and a graphic image, but it communicates that one clear idea that God's gonna win. Now, Babylon, the great city, has fallen, and as I noted at the very beginning, all of the forces of evil under the, under the direction of the beast and the Antichrist, the false prophet, have gathered together to create one unified earthly army to fight against the powers of heaven, the powers of God, the army of God. And of course, the rider on the white horse, Christ, will lead God's forces into this final battle, this final crush of the beast and the Antichrist, ultimately throwing the beast and the Antichrist into the lake of sulfur, where they will burn away. And all of their forces, all of the beast's forces, that army that unified under the kings of the earth, they will be cut down by the rider on the white horse, and their bodies, the flesh of their bodies, will be eaten by the birds. Ugh. The symbolism of Revelation is on full display right here. Resist the temptation of literalizing this passage of Revelation. This is not at its best meant to be literally what will happen at some point in the future, but instead, this is really meant to be the moment when John's vision of the future crystallizes in this idea that every evil thing on the earth will be wiped away by the sword of the tongue of Christ, which is, this not an accident, that it's coming out of the mouth. It is the word of God embodied in the person of Jesus Christ who ultimately wipes away every evil on earth. This is that final push, that final moment, when everything gets wiped away. This idea, this symbolism, is critically important to us today as disciples, which is one of the reasons why the best of Revelation is not meant to be literally predictive of the future. I mean, that's that it disconnects it from anything helpful for us right now today. Instead, allowing Revelation's symbolism to seep into our daily lives, to really get inside us as disciples of Jesus, helps us to change the way we live. Now we're back to this idea of free choice, this sense of mutuality, this shared work of salvation that we as disciples of Jesus share in the world is very important and empowered and inspired by what happens here in Revelation. You see, this battle of evil is waged every day in big and small ways. We are in the middle of it. When we go out into the world, I mean, shoot, before we even go out in the world, right? We are wrestling with the good and the evil in us. We are imperfect beings. And it's God's perfect love 
that helps to reshape and reform us and save us from ourselves. We are tempted by the power and greed and fear and pain of the world every day. If we are strong enough, courageous enough, fearless enough, we can admit that in our own unique ways, we succumb to the fear and the pressure of the world. We close ourselves off to people who are different from us. We, tr we either intentionally or unintentionally find that we judge other people for what they think about certain things or how they've chosen to act without putting in the time and the effort to seek understanding of who they are and why they might make certain choices the way that they do. See, the world is hard. And we can find ourselves confused and scared and then creating behaviors and habits and boundaries that keep us apart from one another. But we are challenged. We are compelled by the love of God, the love God has for each of us to be the best we can in the world, the most loving that we can be, the most just, the most open, the most fearless that we can be in the world. And in doing so, we bear witness to what we see right here in Revelation 19, that the word of Christ that can flow through us, that we can embody, is actually the greatest strength of love there is and will overturn the injustice and the pain and the heartbreak of the evil in the world. That's our faith. That's what we put our faith in together. That's why it is absolutely important that we understand this sense of mutuality in our own discipleship and the community that we share because no one of us can actually make this happen on our own. We need each other. We especially need people who disagree with us, who see the world differently and uniquely. We are called to be in relationship with people who are not like us so that we can together represent as close to complete what we see from God's kingdom as we can. We will always fall short, but we can certainly get closer. And the closer we get, the better we are as representatives of God's love in the world. But y'all, we can't get closer and closer without one another. And so as we rediscover one another in this community and in our earthly human community, we become more and more like the kingdom God hopes us to be, representing the love that God shows us first. That's all I got for you today. So make those comments or questions. If you've not watched live with us, make them here so that we can answer those questions next week. And if you've got questions or comments that you'd like to make directly to Meredith, please send her an email and I will address them as best I can. We've got three more weeks of Bible study, just three more. So stick with us, finish strong, and let me know what you might want to study next year because we're going to be back in the fall for sure hopefully, both physically and digitally. Until then, God bless you all. Know you are in my prayers. Happy Easter once again, and join us anytime as we 
continue to live together in this community, doing the best we can, and all for the glory of God. See you all soon.